be with you. And also Let us pray. Almighty God, you bless the earth to make it fruitful, bringing forth in abundance whatever is needed for the support of our lives. Prosper the work of farmers and all those who labor to bring food to our table. Grant them seasonable weather that they may gather in the fruits of the earth in abundance and proclaim your goodness with thanksgiving. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. That is the psalm colic for the week on Psalm 67. That hymn, Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of Creation, has been um, on the top of my list since I was a little kid. Still is, okay? 
I wanted to draw your attention to the fact that in the congregation at prayer, we will have the introduction to the Lord's Prayer and the first petition of the Lord's Prayer this week. But it is a week off in the academy. We will continue those same two sections next week. So when you get the congregation at prayer next Sunday, do not say to yourself, there is a mistake. It's the same verse and it's the same catechism as last week because it is intentionally so, all right? Uh, I will draw your attention to the verse for the week, 2 Timothy 3.15. Let's speak it together. From childhood you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. This is 2 Timothy, which is written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. So Paul is telling Timothy, from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures. He learned the Holy Scriptures from the synagogue. He also learned the Holy Scriptures for his mother, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois. So... The scriptures that he learned from childhood, the Holy Scriptures, were in their entirety the Old Testament scriptures because when he was little and growing up, there was no New Testament. It, was, it, didn't, it hadn't been written yet. So the scriptures that Paul is referring to when he is addressing Timothy here, are the Old Testament scriptures. As such, then, it gives us a great understanding of the purpose of the Old Testament. The Old Testament scriptures are able, that means they have power, to make you wise for salvation, the wisdom of the cross, and that salvation is through faith in Christ Jesus. Pretty cool, hey? Now, does that mean, because I'm emphasizing the Old Testament, that the New Testament has nothing to do with Jesus? Duh, no. But it does say something about the centrality of the Scripture's witness and message, and that is that it is in Christ. Okay? Let's speak it again. From childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. And why is that the verse assigned for the introduction and for the first petition of the Lord's Prayer? Because the Lord's Prayer is first of all God's Word and under the first petition as the Catechism reminds us, God's name is kept holy when the Word of God, including the Old Testament, is taught in its truth and purity, and we lead holy lives according to it, which will lead us into the discussion for today. But one last thing. At the uh, Congregation of Prayer Catechesis Notes for the Week, Thanksgiving Day Prayer for the Christian Home. So this is prepared for you. You could use this 
as a table prayer for your Thanksgiving feast. Note at the very end, like the last three lines, we commend all our needs, sorrows, and joys to you with thanksgiving, knowing that you love us in Christ and have promised to work in all things for our good. Bless our Thanksgiving feast today and the fellowship we share, even though all of these relatives irritate me and drive me crazy. <laughs> oh, that didn't get... I thought that was in here. All right, anyway. Well, you can add it. So, uh, just kidding, Alec. Don't get excited. All right, anyway, uh, this is for you. It's intended to... Uh, I don't want you to ignore it, and then Thanksgiving comes. Here you go. Use this at the, at the dinner table. All right. Uh, we are going to conclude today the second part of our family life and marriage retreat. The body is spiritual. What does this mean? And we pick it up with thesis number six, remembering the one that preceded it, the concept of holiness or a holy life, is that person whose body and life is lived in and ordered by the word of God. Okay? Now thesis six, the most common and ordinary activity of life is holy or spiritual. That is to say, by the word spiritual, of the Holy Spirit. When such an activity or life is performed in faith according to the word of God. Now, I had listed Romans 14.23 there, but I failed to uh, list 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, and that's the one I, I wanted to especially emphasize. Now, if you didn't bring your sheet back, bring them back, okay? There are for you to take, but not for you to leave home. So I think there must be some new ones there. Good. So 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 and 5. Every creature of God is good. And nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified, there is to make something holy by the word of God and prayer. Now, as we noted already last week, activities are not sanctified by the word of God and prayer unless those activities conform to the word of God. In other words, you can't read a psalm, and then pray a prayer before you rob a bank, asking God to bless your thievery. It might look like a prayer. You might even quote some passage of Scripture, but it ain't in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, it might seem bizarre and weird for me to even say that, or even unnecessary, but it's absolutely necessary. The bodies that we're given and the lives we live are so ordered by God according to his word, that's what makes them spiritual lives or spiritual 
bodies, okay? So what meditation upon the Word of God and prayer does is to drive us back into the Scriptures to ground our faith and our lives in the certainty of God's Word. That's what the Word of God gives. Uh, some of you may be familiar with the three functions of the law. The first function is a civil function to maintain order in the home, in society, curbing gross outbreaks of sin. The second function of the law exposes our sin. It is used to call us to repentance and faith. But then the third function of the law for us as Christians is a standard and guide and rule of what is right and good which we need because of the problem of sin that continues to adhere to us. So because of the old Adam, because of the problem of sin and the corruption of our fallen nature, on the one hand, we're a believer, but on the other hand, we have that enemy. So we need the word of God to, this is true, this is right. And remembering that what is true and good and right is always going to militate against what the sinful flesh desires as good and right. Now, before leaving this passage or this thesis, notice how St. Paul begins. At the end of chapter 3, verse 16, this is where chapters and verses sometimes put um, artificial barriers between concepts. So when we come into a new chapter, we think, A, it's not talking at all about what preceded it in the previous chapter, uh, or B, you know, it is uh, a completely new topic. So look at verse 16 of chapter 3. Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. Now, that concept of godliness there, once again, is related to the concept of holiness. God was manifested in the flesh. Wow. The mystery of godliness is God was manifest in the flesh. It's the first thing that Paul says there. Therefore, our flesh is holy. Sin has corrupted us, yes, but the creation of our fleshly lives is good. So God was manifested in the flesh. We're talking about Jesus' conception, his incarnation and birth, justified in the Spirit, declared righteous in the Holy Spirit. We see this throughout Jesus' ministry. He's anointed by the Holy Spirit, and the Father said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So when the scribes and the Pharisees call him a wine-bibber and a glutton, their word is false. The Father's word is true. This is my beloved Son. Seen by angels, both the spirit beings who proclaim the message of salvation and people like the apostles, preached among the Gentiles. Paul was, you know, chiefly in that, in that work, believed on in the world, received up in glory. 
so the God who was manifested in the flesh was justified in the spirit. The God who was manifested in the flesh was seen by angels. The God who was manifested in the flesh was preached among the Gentiles. The God who was manifested in the flesh was believed on in the world. And the God who was manifested in the flesh was received up into glory. This just simply goes to underscore that our fleshly existence is holy and good as it is created and ordered by God. So Kent... Get all of these thoughts about changing your sexual identity out of your head. The way you are now is good. Okay? Christine wants some other things changed about you, but not your, not your gender. Okay? It is good. All right. And Jesus' particular incarnation in the flesh is significant. He could not have been... He could not have been conceived and born a woman. Not because God doesn't like women, but because of the ordering of creation. Where did humanity come from? God, who created Adam from the dust of the ground, out of whose side woe-man came. So he is described in Scripture, literally, as well as theologically, as the second Adam. All humanity descended from Adam, including the problem of sin we've inherited from him. And all humanity, all humanity is redeemed by the second Adam in the flesh. So Jesus, in his incarnation embraces all of humanity, all of humanity descended from Adam. And at his baptism, where he is declared to be the Lamb of God, he then aligns himself with all the sin of humanity as it is imputed to him. Okay? So that's very significant for understanding not only where we came from, not only the holiness of our fleshly existence as men and women and children and the order of family, of life, and of marriage, but also for understanding the problem of sin and the corruption of our humanity. There is a false gospel out there in the world that says, because God is love, because Jesus manifested God's love, because salvation is by grace through faith and not by works. Therefore, according to the gospel of God's love, all things are to be accepted. So if I don't accept Kent's idea of a sex change operation, which he is so eager to have, I am unloving. Because the gospel means that we should embrace that and accept that. And if I don't, I'm being judgmental and I'm sinning against the gospel. Now, that's a lie. That's a false teaching. Okay? In terms of salvation, there's no difference. Male, female, slave, free, Jew or Gentile. But you will note from the gospels that Jesus does not obliterate the order of creation. He upholds it and has redeemed it. That's very important. Now, we said this before, and it's worth just mentioning again. 
relationships that are otherwise ordered according to God's design, yet corrupted by sin, can enjoy forgiveness and redemption. But relationships which are disordered according to creation cannot enjoy redemption. Now that might sound wrong to you, but let me illustrate. A man and a woman who come together in the one flesh union prior to marriage is a sinful act. However, the act itself is according to God's design, whereas a homosexual uh, sexual union is not according to God's design. So where there's, there can be repentance and restoration of the man and the woman who have engaged in premarital relations, but there can be no such there can be repentance, but you cannot sanctify that relationship between two men or two women because it is contrary to God's design. It's outside of his order. So what does repentance look like there? It is the renunciation of that disorder in favor of God's order. Okay, and then, of course, faith in his forgiveness. Yes, Cindy. Sin always wants more. She says it's never satisfied because it's selfish, self-centered. Right. So throughout history, the Bible talks about homosexual relationships. But 200 years ago, nobody would ever think, I'm a woman and I'm going to have a surgery to be a man. Right? That was not, well, maybe they thought that, but it just was not possible. Well, there there were certain surgeries done in the ancient world, mutilations done. Okay. You are certainly right in terms of quote-unquote mainstream. Yeah. So now as we see this like more mainstream sex change operations, when I listen to you or when I listen to God's word, it's more and more flying in the face of God's order, God's creation, God's... Like this is an attack on what God has... Yeah, that's why we've said to attack God's order in the creation of humanity is in his image is an attack on the incarnation of Christ, therefore it's antichrist, right. and it's attack on the Holy Trinity. So do you see this movement of sex changes and sex changes at a young age, um, more and more um, advancement of sin, I guess is what, I, I, I for a better lack of Yes, it, it, it certainly, it represents the decay of, of the society and culture. Now, now this is not, uh, to, to talk about homosexual unions or sex change operations is not the point of uh, the, the body is spiritual. But I'm trying to use those as foils against, that's, that's profane, which comes up in, in Thesis 7 here, as opposed to the holiness of God. And what I think most Christians uh, suffer under is a lack of appreciation for and a belief in the holiness of their lives. Okay. Um, and also, you know, this has to do with the body and with love. Now, so I'm going to ask my wife to come up here for a moment. She doesn't know what I'm going to do. Okay. So, 
Beth and I are husband and wife. So this is entirely appropriate, <laughs> right? Because we're, we're husband and wife. Now, I might hug her this way, and she might hug me. For what reason? Well, you can say, because we love each other. And that would be true. But, but love takes on many forms and manifestations. If I am sorrowful over something, she might embrace me in that way. If we've had some wonderful day with the grandchildren and it's the end of the day, we just might celebrate that with a hug, all right? So that physical gesture, and of course, I like putting my hand on my, her head because I'm very short and someone I can actually, <laughs> whose head I can reach is a good thing. Now, but it uses the body. Yeah, 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 okay, fine. But the body also can be used for profane things. So if I slap her in the face, that is as ugly and profane a thing and outside of God's order for a husband to do in the opposite direction as the warm and loving embrace is. Do you follow? So other activities. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make another point, but I have to do another illustration. In 2020, in May, when it was safer at home, we all know that, it was safer at home, of course, she got bit by a tick at home, and I, in fact, Jody was, is Jody here? Yeah, because I didn't just let Jody split logs, and I was next, I flipped a log with my gloves on and smashed, broke the tip of my ring finger on my right hand, and pulled the nail completely off of the nail bed. So I knew it hurt a lot, but I had my glove on, and I realized I better stop trying to do this as blood is trickling down <laughs> my, to my elbow. So Beth had come home, and I went to her by the back door, and I needed her to unlace my boots, because I couldn't do it. So she unlaces my boots, loosens my boots, helps me take my boots off, and we go into the house, and then, of course, I take the glove off and the nail, and I'm thinking, well, it will be okay. <laughs> she says, you better, uh, you need to go to the doctor, emergency or urgent care, all right. Now, I mentioned two activities, this warm embrace and the unlacing of my shoes, and that was when COVID, we got the Supreme Court of the state opened things up. We had ascension service that night. This was 4.15 in the afternoon. Okay. So then she got my clothes, put them in the car so I could go to the urgent care and be fixed. You can say that. <laughs> now, this is what I would like to say to you. And I, I mentioned, we're going to have a, a, a full session studying 1 Corinthians 7, where there was a question posed to Paul, 
is it right for a man not to touch a woman? And uh, yes, it is right, especially if the woman is not your, your spouse, you know. And then he goes on to talk about the man's body does not belong to him, but belongs to his wife. And the woman's body does not belong to her, but belongs to him. Now the world, I'll give you an anticipation of what's to come. The world hears that, and our fleshly nature hears that, and understands it this way. My woman's body belongs to me, so her chief responsibility is to please me. A very selfish, self-centered type of thing. When actually, it is the opposite. And that's illustrated then in this activity of unlacing her husband's boots because he can't do it. Okay? I am there to serve him in that sense for his good. Okay? As opposed to... His, and So this is my body, my husband, because we're one flesh. In the same way in Ephesians 5, St. Paul says, no one ever hated his body, but nourishes and cherishes it. Which means the warm embrace and the other things we do with our body in marriage or as parents in family are holy and sacred. And when it comes to marriage, that is all a part of making love. Which means then to hug your wife when you come home from work or before you leave in the morning is part of love making as it uses the body to give and receive love. To say with the mouth, I love you, and to return that, I love you, is part of love making. Okay? And this is very important to understand the totality of one. So, making supper last night while Beth was in town picking up the flowers for Granny Bender's birthday and Thanksgiving, I was happy to do that. We had Dad's delicious sloppy joes, my recipe, because Jacob was over. You see, we tend to look at the body in such profane ways. Instead of understanding that the earthly, ordinary things of life are all holy when they are done according to God's word for the giving and receiving of love. Okay, before leaving this and going on to the next one, your eyes, are they part of your body? Of course. But some of us think that what we look at has no effect on our bodies, psyches, brains, minds, or spiritual condition. Not so. What goes into the organ of the eye can either edify or corrupt. It's why you ought to keep your children away from looking at things. This world is full of images 
which are foul and profane and fan the flames of self-centered egotistical desire. And it's like um, drugs, like fentanyl or something, or heroin. Once you start partaking, what is established, if it doesn't kill you immediately? An addiction, all right? Also, what you hear, what you hear. Are your ears part of your body? Yeah, they're an extremely important organ. That's why to hear hymnody, to hear scripture, as well as to speak and to sing it, is edifying to the body. But just as the eye can take in things that are destructive spiritually, so the ear can hear things that titillate the flesh and are destructive. Okay? The mouth, is the mouth part of your body? Yes. By the mouth we ingest food, but by the mouth we speak. I love in the table of duties where it simply says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Unless they tick you off. No, it doesn't say that. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with you. Unless they deserve it. It doesn't say that. It says, do not be harsh. You want some third use of the law to ground you in truth? If I'm yelling at my wife, it ain't right. I don't care how much she deserves it. It is simply not right to be harsh with her. And we have a difficult time with that. Out of the mouth, you know, St. James talks about this in epistles, in his epistle, we bless and we curse. And just as activities, things going in the eye, things going in the ear can corrupt, things coming out of the mouth can destroy. And it takes a long time to rebuild that which is destroyed. Which is why when we have difficulties in all of these areas, our, our bodies, our spiritual bodies have been corrupted. It's why we need more and more and more and more and more and more of the gospel, the good words that come out of Jesus' mouth for us in our broken condition. All right, so the most common and ordinary activity of the human body is holy or spiritual when it is performed in faith and according to the word of God. Oh, I, I didn't finish the rest of four, chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry. Isn't it interesting that that is the first thing? You're getting married? You have a career. What are you doing getting married? You're having another child? What's the matter with you? How irresponsible can you be? Well, uh, time out, time out. That is the doctrine of demons. It directly violates be fruitful and multiply. Anyway, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods which God had, uh, created to be received with thanksgiving, like this Thursday, 
by those who believe and know the truth, for every creature of God is good. Nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving. It is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. So it's, it's fascinating, is it not, that St. Paul uses marriage as an example, the forbidding of God's institution of marriage as he ordained it, which includes, you know, we are, marriage is at an all-time low. Did you know that in terms of um, people getting married? Instead, they shack up. Okay? preferring that design over God's design. And the reality is to live together before marriage statistically, even if you don't look at what God's word says, statistically is more destructive 10 times over than it is to remain chaste prior to marriage and then make that commitment. Okay. All right, I, don't want, I want to get through the rest of the uh, theses here today. So number seven says, a profane life is that person whose body and life is lived contrary to the word of God. Third commandment, that we not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. And then the first petition, great, we have it this week. God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity. And we as the children of God also lead holy lives according to it. Again, lives that are ordered by God's word. Help us to do this, dear Father in heaven. So number eight, the flesh, the human nature. Now, the flesh, the human nature includes, excuse me, both body and soul. But notice the emphasis is on the flesh. It's fascinating. But our our nature is not just fleshly, but neither is it just soul. And this is a lie, that your body doesn't matter. And so when a person dies, eh, not that person anyway. When we looked at the resurrection this last Wednesday night from Mark 16, the women and the others and the angel always refer to Jesus. You seek Jesus. Not you seek Jesus' body, that doesn't mean anything. You seek Jesus, the person of Jesus. So to be a human being is to be body as well as soul, including in this reference to flesh, which we might tend to think is simply the physical stuff. It is both the body and the soul. So the flesh, the human nature, is corrupted by sin since Adam's fall. And Genesis 6, 1 through 8. If you don't have it in front of you, I shall read it for you. This is in the beginning of the flood narrative. Genesis 6, 1 through 8. Now it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. Duh! And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. There were giants also on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. 
Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the foundations of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry or grieved at his creation of man on the earth. He was grieved in his heart. Now, several things uh, I want to say about this. Genesis 6 here is upholding the order of creation. When it says, the sons, in verse 2, the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. That reference to the sons of God are not some aliens or strange spiritual beings like your conspiratorial theorists say, but rather what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the head of every man is Christ, sons of God. The head of the woman is the man. The head of Christ is God the Father. So the reference here, the sons of God, are what men are called. The daughters of men are those who are conceived and born according to the order of creation. So, uh, and then verse 4 There were giants on the earth in those days. The Nephilim are big people. Prior to Genesis 6, how long did Methuselah live? 969 years. That in itself is a gigantic number, isn't it? I mean, many people die before the age of 69. He lived 969. Do you think that maybe Methuselah and those other folks that lived prior to the flood, these extremely centuries long, do you think there was a certain virility about them that maybe doesn't exist today? Yes. I mean, just like when, if if Michael, sorry, I'm dating myself. If Mike, or what's the guy from uh, Giannis? What's he? Okay. Yeah. How tall is he? Six feet, 11 inches. If I stood, I'm not even 5'11". I'm about 5'7 something, just slipping below 5'8". You put the two of us next to each other, he's a, he's a giant. So don't be overwhelmed by these ideas. The point here is about the corruption that in spite of the virility of man, you know, prior to the flood, these long ages, now, according to this text, what's going to be the upper end? No longer 900, 800, 700, 120. That's the, that's the upper end of things. Okay? And uh, there were some pretty enormous people back then. It doesn't mean they were not descendants of Adam and they're sons of God except they had corrupted themselves. Okay. So, and then also, also in Genesis, um, at the end of the flood narrative, chapter 8, verse 21, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. Notice how the order of creation is in that verse also. 
Because what is meant by the imagination of man's heart is evil continually. Does it mean that only my heart and imaginations are corrupted, but not my wife's because she's not a man? No. Man there means mankind, but the use of the word man, this is why we can't give it up, bespeaks the order of creation. And to gender neutralize things is to obliterate that order of creation. So Kent, what uh, pronouns are you identifying with these days? Oh, it. You're, a, you're, you're going the it route. Don't do that, please. All right. Uh, thesis number nine, the incarnation of the Son of God in human flesh is the greatest testimony to the inherent goodness, beauty, holiness, and spiritual nature of the human body in his conception, birth, ministry, suffering, death, burial, and resurrection. A lot of passages there uh, that could be looked up. I, I should simply say also, you know, his very life. Among the things that I love, and there are too many to list, in the film The Passion of the Christ are these flashbacks in Jesus' life growing up. Like him building a table or a chair and his mother is scratching her head about the design because it's like a table and chair we have today, how you sit on it and so forth. I love that because that is holy work. What Joseph taught him as a carpenter was holy work. What Mary did, allowing him to suckle at her breast, was a holy work. Changing diapers, Janine, is a holy work. Being at the bedside of a sick child is holy work. And it doesn't mean that holy works are easy. In fact, because of the problem of sin and our weakness, they can be hard as hell. And they can demand the ultimate sacrifice. But what is hard as hell that demands the ultimate sacrifice? Is it not the suffering and death of Jesus, body and soul, upon the cross? So that holy work of Jesus, whereby that work was sanctified by the word of God in prayers. He's praying from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From Psalm 22, that is holy work because it is ordered and done according to God's word and it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. So every activity, every bar none of your life, cleaning up the vomit of your six-year-old. I was so grateful this last week. Had to take Jacob home, and I asked him before I took him home midday, I said, are you feeling sick to your stomach? No. Well, he drove home, and I said, that's good, you know. Get in the door at his house. And I said, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. It happened not in my back seat. So, and we all have opportunities like that, right? All right, so we will be returning to this number nine thesis in various ways. And finally, the resurrection of the body testifies to the spiritual nature of the body redeemed from the corruption of our flesh or nature. And we'll be taking a look at 1 Corinthians 15 in the future. But I remember in the, um, in the hymnal project serving on the agenda committee, we tightened up the language so as not to give any opportunity for misunderstanding. 
by putting bodily resurrection in there because I have heard many a sermon even by Lutheran pastors who speak of the resurrection as if for that deceased Christian as if it has already taken place, as if resurrection is the soul going to heaven. No. No, that's not the resurrection. The resurrection is they went to the tomb and Jesus was not lying there. And then Jesus said to Mary, Mary, and she saw him and then she hugged his body. The resurrection is where put your hands into my hands and into my side. Be not faithless, but believing. So you may not like your body now, but you will like your body in the resurrection. When in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the corruptible flesh, body and soul, will put on incorruption, body and soul. So the resurrection is where the souls of the dear departed who are with the Lord now will be reunited with their bodies because God loves your body just the way it is, Kent. Just the way it is. And, and if you have that operation, you're not going to have fulfillment. You won't. Because there is never any fulfillment outside of God's order. I don't care how much you insist, my way or the highway. When you insist that in the face of God, it's just, I'm telling you right now, when you fight against God, you lose. But it's not easy to be in the Word, but when you're in the Word, even suffering is sanctified for our good. All right, next, uh, next time we gather together, the problem of sin and its disordered and destructive impact on family, life, and marriage. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.